right, let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that you would help us in these moments now to be inclined to the, the teaching of your word, the inspired word of God that has the power to change our lives, to transform our thinking, to change our hearts. We pray that it would come into our hearts as life-giving truth this morning. We need to hear it. We need to believe it. Uh, and we pray that uh, your spirit would allow that work to happen, O oh God. We pray that we would be attentive, even with um, uh, a full room with kids. We pray that this truth would meet those uh, who need to hear it, even the, the young ones among us. We pray that we would be encouraged by God's word and be with us for this uh, entire service, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen. If you're new to Seven Mile Road, uh, we've been spending a couple of months preaching through the biblical book of Esther. And this week is going to be our final week in the book of Esther. We end this week and we've been walking through this um, Hollywood-type story of just epic uh, twists and epic turns that are unexpected where God's providence is seen at every turn. And it's been a really interesting journey walking through this with you. And even as we've been in this book, uh, as I was studying this past week, uh, I think our generation and in recent generations, uh, we can identify particularly well with the story and the account of Esther. Because as we read through the book of Esther, it's not in the too recent past that the shadow of the Holocaust has been behind us, where one-third of the Jewish population in the world was annihilated in the very last century. You need not be Jewish to feel the weight of that, the terror of that kind of evil, and to be thankful that Hitler did not further succeed with his goal. During that time, the book of Esther, they were treasured pages of scripture by the Jews who were imprisoned in the Nazi death camps. So meaningful was the book that even if one did not have a copy of the book of Esther, they would actually pen out the book of Esther from memory just so that they could read it. The significance of the book of Esther mattered so much to the Jews during Nazi Germany that Nazi soldiers would kill any Jew on the spot found with a copy of the book of Esther. That's how serious this was. That's how much it mattered to them, and the Nazis wanted to eliminate it. Why? Uh, why did they not want the Jewish people in these camps to read the book of Esther? Because I think as we've been seeing, as we've been reading, this book brought assurance to the Jewish people. This book had the ability to bring hope to them, even at the most evil of circumstances, even at the most hopeless of situations surrounding them. And I think as we've been in the book of Esther for some time now, it's not hard to see why it would be such an encouraging book for someone like a Jew in Holocaust to read this book and find some hope. Uh, because within the book of Esther is the account of the anticipated annihilation of the Jewish people turned around to the destruction of the very people who wanted to kill them and resulting in their own salvation. I'd imagine if you are a Jew sitting in a Nazi camp, that's a really good story to hear. It's almost like you're reading your own story. And you read that at the end, there's salvation and there's deliverance. I, don't, I can't imagine a better story that you could have with you in your back pocket as you are a Jew in Nazi Germany. Uh, though our circumstances are worlds apart 
from the Jewish people, for most of us, we're actually deeply connected with their story. Because the salvation that we see in the book of Esther for the Jews points to the realities that are eternally real for us. Would you hear that? The, the, the things that the book of Esther point to are eternally true for us. The book of Esther that the Jew in Nazi Germany reads during that time pointed to a God who saves his people from their enemies, who saves his people from evil, who saves his people from death itself. And as we read into the book of Esther, in this moment today, whatever you are facing today, whatever moment in time you find yourself in today, my hope, my prayer is that you and I might be strengthened in faith in God as we look back over this story and as we look forward into another. Uh, my prayer, my hope is that you and I would be strengthened as we both look back at what happened, as well as as we look forward into another story. We're in Esther 9, 20, the passage that Jason read for us this morning. And the first thing we read about is the inauguration of this feast called Purim. That's how the book starts in verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20, it says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor." If the word Purim sounds familiar to you as we've been in the book of Esther, it's because if you go back to chapter 3, verse 7, poor, the word P-U-R, is what is described as casting lots. It's sort of like rolling the dice on something. And the rolling of dice is how Haman actually decided on the very day that he would send forth the decree to annihilate and to exterminate the Jews. That's the method that he used. Rolling dice, essentially, casting lots. And so the question is, why would you name a festival after the very instrument your enemy used to schedule your annihilation? If you're using this thing called poor to schedule the day in which you want to kill the Jewish people, why on the other side as a Jew would you say that's going to be the name of our festival? Well, it's subtle. But it does seem like Mordecai names the festival Purim to show that God's people, hear this, that God's people are not simply left to the chance of rolling dice. God's people are not just left to the chance of rolling dice. It feels like an ironic statement that says, you can roll the dice, but God chooses how it lands. In fact, that's not just how it sounds. That's what Proverbs actually says. If you turn over to Proverbs 16.33, here's what it says. The lot, similar language, the lot cast into the lap. It's cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You may roll the dice, but it's every decision exactly where it will land, how it will land, and when it will land that way is up to God. 
So while Haman may have thought he was leaving this decision up to fate, he didn't know that the fate of all things rests in the very hands of God. Would you hear that? That's, that's why he names this festival Purim. It should be an ironic statement, almost a jab at Haman to say, you thought you were getting us, but God holds the fate of the world in his very hands, even at the rolling of dice. And so during Purim, during this feast, you did two things. One, you, you feast, you eat good food, and you drink good drink. And the second thing is you give. You give to those around you, and you give to the poor. It was a festival that, as it's become known and practiced, it lasts perhaps even up to two days. Two days of looking back, remembering what God has done. Perhaps many of you, if you have any Jewish friends, you know that this tradition has not been eliminated. This tradition actually continues to carry on to this very day, ever since Mordecai actually uh, initiated it, inaugurated it back here in the book of Esther. And throughout the years, it's taken shape in different ways, and all kinds of traditions have started. Some, some weird, some violent, but all kinds of things have evolved out of this tradition, this festival of Purim. For example... During Purim, the entire book of Esther is read out loud for all the Jewish people to hear. And in chapter 9, when it gets to the list of Haman's ten sons, during this tradition of Purim, it was, it was typical for the person reading this section of the ten names of Haman, of the sons of Haman, to be saying it as fast as that person could in one breath. So you would say these ten names as fast as you could in one breath so that you can symbolize the quick end of them all together because that's what chapter 9 actually records for us as Dennis preached for us last week that these 10 sons were uh, were executed that they were put on the gallows and, and so when you read these 10 names fast and in one breath you are symbolizing for people to know that's how quick their life was and if you've read the 10 names of Haman before it's hard to say them at regular pace, let alone to say them as fast as you can and in one breath. And so you're supposed to get the feel of that during Purim. In other traditions, they would boo at the name of Haman, and they would cheer at the name of Mordecai. Anytime Haman's name was mentioned, kids would have rattlers in their hands and stones in their hands so that they could drown out the, the awful name of Haman. Don't name your kid Haman. People will boo People will rattle shakers. But even more than that, some would even write the name of Haman on the soles of their shoes during Purim. And any time the name of Haman was mentioned, they would stomp their feet any time he was mentioned to show protest, to show disagreement as well as victory of God over evil Haman. I think it's safe to say they did not like Haman very much. They thought of everything to drown him out, to make him seem like a fool. The festival of Purim, it's evolved over the years and has become a highlight in Jewish tradition. It's, it's a fun event. It's a, it's a joyful event. And I think it's actually good for us to see that here. It's good for us, uh, for those in the room who are religious or are part of a church or are Christian, it's good for us to see that there is rejoicing and celebration here. Because though you and I may know how to rightfully cheer at a football game or get down on the dance floor at a party, Christians tend to be better at mourning than at celebrating. We can tend to be downers rather than look at all the brightness that the gospel has actually given us. And I think I lean this way. 
I'm often made fun of because I like movies with dark twists and no closure. I like my songs with the minor key. I don't wear particularly bright clothing. Look what I'm wearing today. It's as muted as blue can be. I, I'm often that kind of person. I lean sort of more muted and, and, and somber. Christianity can have this sort of somber feeling of gloom. We can tend to focus on our sin, and we should. But we can sometimes tend to focus on our sin and completely miss the Savior. We can miss the work that He has done. It's true we must fight sin, acknowledge sin, confess sin. But as I've heard one preacher say, sin doesn't lead to celebration. Salvation leads to celebration. And that's what we see here in the Feast of Purim. Because consider, there is sin in the world, there's brokenness in the world, there is an awful story, there is a world in which we live in that is evil and it's hard to live in. But we believe in a God who became man who died for your sins, who rose as Savior, and He loves you, and He knows you, and He's preparing a place for you, and you will reign forever with Him, and that is worth celebrating, friends. There is a beautiful, glorious gospel that is put over the darkness of this world because Christ has entered into the darkness. It means that as we sing on Sundays, even today, you should sing with full hearts, it's right to lift your hands in thanksgiving to the God who has done everything for you and I. It means that it's right to throw parties for others and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord is right. It is good. It's why Mordecai tells the Jews in verses 23 to 28 to keep this tradition of Purim and to remember what God has done for them. It's why he says it, to never forget to always remember the deliverance of God from their enemies. We can relate with this. It's why we have feasts. It's why we have holidays like Thanksgiving and July 4th and Veterans Day so that we can celebrate and remember and make note of. It's why we have monuments and it's why we have statues. If you go to the Abraham Lincoln Memorial, for example, in D.C., you know how moving that is as you look into the, the words on those two walls and you step back into history and you see all that has been done through his work. You remember, you rejoice. In the Feast of Purim, we see it's sort of a way of God communicating that you and I have this great opportunity to recollect how he has acted in the past so that we might make sense of today, right? As you look back, part of the, the hope, part of the intention is that as you look back, you would actually see history and have sense of what to make life of today. Uh, in a couple of weeks here at Seven Mile Road, in a few short weeks as Justin announced, we're going we're gonna to be celebrating 10 years of being planted here at Seven Mile Road. 10 years of ministry, of ups and downs, of baptisms, conversions, of those who have wandered, but the Lord has been faithful in these 10 years. And why are we gathering on Saturday for a banquet in a couple of weeks? It's not just to dress up fancy and show off some dance moves, though I can't wait to see yours. Why are we gathering the next day on Sunday to throw a picnic and eat food and have moon bounces and volleyball outside? It's not simply to... Have fun on a Sunday morning, though I hope we will. It's more than that. We do this to remember. 
We do this to remember 10 years of God's faithfulness. We do it to look back at God's work, to consider even for a moment that we, you and I, are gathered here today because before there were ever faithful members of SMR, there were faithful saints of another SMR who started St. Mark's Reformed Church in 1876. Before there were faithful saints sitting here of SMR, there was another SMR, would you know, that were connected to other saints who have gone before who would one day pass the, the baton of the gospel on to us to continue gospel ministry here. That God preserved saints down through the decades who loved Jesus, who loved his gospel so that we could continue proclaiming it today on this very day. We celebrate 10 years to remember that there was a God providentially at work in the story of Seven Mile Road long before Seven Mile Road ever got here. We remember, we look back at the providence, the favor of God. Listen, Purim reminds us that yes, you could roll the dice, you could carry a rabbit's foot in one pocket, you can carry a four-leaf clover in the other. You can subscribe to every horoscope you possibly can find. But these do not determine your life and mine. They don't determine the world's fate. No, you and I, Seven Mile Road, we must be firm in acknowledging and knowing that God is the God of Purim, and he determines every outcome in the world down to the very details of your life and mine. In verses 29 to 32, Queen Esther reaffirms the decree to set forth the keeping of the festival of Purim. So Mordecai sends it out. He recounts all that God has done, the salvation that God gives the Jews from their destruction. And Queen Esther then affirms it in verse 29. It says, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. As we look back over the book of Esther, these, these nearly 10 chapters now, we look back and we remember. We've said over and over again, you've heard preacher after preacher up here saying, this book is full of reversals. It's of seeing one thing happening and another thing happening at the end. It's not what you necessarily expect. In fact, it's what's happening again here as we read the verses I just read for you. Because if you remember last week, there was an irrevocable letter. Do you remember that? There was an irrevocable letter that went out to the empire to annihilate the Jewish race. Irrevocable. The king couldn't even revoke that decree. But look here. A letter is now sent out from Esther of a tradition that is never to be revoked. They say don't ever cease to do this. Don't ever cease to remember this. As long as your generations last, continue this. It's an irrevocable letter that I'm saying, keep this in your family. Keep this in generations. Tell the story of God's deliverance, of what should have been their guaranteed death. All over this book of Esther, you see reversal after reversal. 
It starts with the great king Xerxes, high on his throne, but we'll soon see it ends with the greatness of a low Mordecai. This book starts with Esther disguising her Jewish identity. But at the end of the story, not only is she not hiding it, but everyone wants to be Jewish. At the end, at the beginning of the story, we start with the great feasting of the Persians. You remember drunken parties and lots of wine and lots of food to fill every heart for months and months and months. This Persian feast. But in the end, it's the Jewish people who are now feasting. Consider those who wanted to kill the Jews are killed themselves and the Jews are saved. The days of mourning become the days of celebrating It writes, it becomes a holiday. The day that should have been their end, their destruction, becomes a holiday for the Jewish people. This book is filled with reversals. And in all of this excitement, and all the reversal, and all the joy and and celebration of what God has been doing for the people of Israel... We get to the last chapter of the book with three short verses in chapter 10. And the first verse after this great celebration reads, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. I mean, I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel like a a great ending to a story. That you're going to get your taxes increased. No one's throwing a party for that, right? Right? I mean, it feels like an anticlimactic ending to an amazing story. You have this massive reversal of fortunes and a great festival to celebrate. And it ends by saying your taxes are going up. And part of the reason I think that this is here is to remind us. Remember cruel and violent Xerxes? Do you remember him? Well, he's still king. And he hasn't changed. He's the same old Ahasuerus who does what he wants, who makes the lives of people miserable. He's the same old king. He's not been taken off of his throne. Xerxes is still king. He still rules over Persia, over an imperfect land and in a broken world. It reminds you after all this celebration, after all this feasting and excitement, that you and I still live in brokenness. You and I still have threats all around us. Yes, we live in this world where there's feast and celebrations, and rightly, we should be a part of that and do those. And yet, you get to verse 1 of chapter 10, and you're like, Xerxes is still there. Evil still exists. And you ask the question, how could you possibly celebrate How could you possibly rejoice in a world like this? How could you and I possibly rejoice or lift your head up in an existence like this? Have you asked yourself that question recently? I've asked it yesterday. Steph and I went out to hang out with some friends uh, last night, some friends from Seven Mile Road, and it was a great night just to catch up with them. We discussed the world. We discussed our country we discussed dun-dun-dun politics. We discussed how broken it is. We discussed our fears. To summarize this two-hour time together, it was bleak. It was a bleak conversation. It was dark. I mean, what do you expect? You're hanging out with me, right? It, it, was, uh, it was not an encouraging 
conversation most of the night. It, it was difficult to consider the things that we ourselves are facing, the things that are facing our world and our country and our city. But one of the things that we came back to over and over again, especially as our friends reminded us, was this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Listen, as you look into the world, as you look out into our country, into our city, into the details of even your life, perhaps even the brokenness of our city, the, the, the lives of folks within this church, our church, our hope is not in seeing some utopian world come to fruition, of seeing all of the problems of the world fixed, of mitigating every possible risk so that you and I feel safe and secure in this existence. If this world is your home, it's really hard to celebrate. If this world is your home, it's really hard to lift your head up and to rejoice. But what if this world is not your home? What if this isn't your home? I think you'd be able to celebrate. I think I'd be able to celebrate in that kind of an existence. As did the Jews and Esther living in Persia, you and I live ex exiles in this world. It's a biblical word, right? This word of exile, living somewhere that's not your home. We live as sojourners passing through. We live today in chaotic times where things are not as they should be. Hardship, pain, a sense of displacement feels like the rule instead of an exception in our lives sometimes. And when you look deep into your soul, when you look deep into your heart, you know the feeling that exile is the essence of your existence feels more real than anything. You sense that this is not my home. You sense that home is actually far away, that this is not the way things should be. When you're reading the story of Esther, it's easy to love it, right? It's easy to read the pages of Esther and to look at it and see the story and love it. But if you were in the story of Esther, it would be really hard to see what's happening and why, right? It's easy to have a book in front of you, read the pages from beginning to end, see how all the pieces fit together and love it. But if you're in the story, you're experiencing everything real time, live, as it's coming. And it's really hard to live in that kind of an existence. How many of you have, I'm guessing all of you who are sane, have watched the Super Bowl when the Eagles won? How many have, have gone back home and re-watched it and re-watched it and re-watched it over and over again? I think a lot of you probably have, right? E even though you know how it ends, even though you know exactly the plays that are going to happen, you love watching it over and over again. You still, for some reason, get angry at turnovers and missed tackles, even when it looks like they may lose, may lose this thing. Right? You get angry when the things you know are going to happen, happen. But you still know it's going to end in victory. It's going to end with a win. It's going to end with Brady on the floor. You know that's going to happen. Sometimes, even as you watch, the worse it gets, the happier you become. Why? Because you know how it ends. 
You know that even the, the pain that you're feeling of seeing them potentially lose is not true. You know how this story ends. Because don't worry, they will win in the end. It's going to be okay. But if you've experienced watching the Super Bowl firsthand, live, you know the anxiety that you felt. You know the pressure of not knowing if they would win. Uh, can you imagine the players on the field putting all their sweat, energy, years into this thing, not sure how the game will end? Like sometimes life feels like that. Sometimes life feels like you're in the middle of a movie, and it's a dark movie with a, with a twisted plot. It feels like the turn in the story has not happened yet. The bad guys are winning. We're sentenced to misery in this life. God's people seem to be losing. Death and suffering are reigning. Abuse and mistreatment are rampant. Greed and selfishness rule the day. But as I heard one preacher this week rightly say, in the middle of this movie that you're living, don't throw your popcorn on the floor and walk out of the theater. Don't throw your popcorn on the floor and walk out of the theater because this movie's really dark sometimes. Wait. Endure. Stay in your seat. It gets better. Wait until the end. It gets better. God is going to work it all out. Stay in your seat. Don't move. Endure. And in the end, Seven Mile Road will rise from death. And sin and evil will be no more. It's a story, the end of which we know. Stay in your seat. Endure even though it feels really dark when you're in the middle of the story. Listen, though chapter 10 seems to close with a downer, it actually doesn't. Even though it feels weird to end with a proclamation of taxes in verse 1, there's two more verses that we have not read. And here's verse 2 and 3. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitudes of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people." Do you hear how Mordecai is being described at the very end of Esther? As one who sought the welfare of his people and spoke what? Peace to all of his people. That's how it ends. Do you know what that should remind you of? Do you know what those words, spoke peace, should remind you of? Jesus. It should point you to Jesus. Because here's how Isaiah 9 Verse 6 describes Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as you get to the end of Esther, you start thinking, you start hearing a faint echo of the coming of Jesus Christ. That there is one coming who is greater than Mordecai. Not just the one who will bring peace, but the prince of peace. The one who accomplishes peace. The one who is peace itself. Listen, you and I live in a world that is often not peaceful. 
It's altered, it's affected, it's marred, it has broken people, and it has broken institutions. But do you know why? Because the Prince of Peace has not come again. The Prince of Peace has not yet come again to make all things right. But he will come. Purim is not simply about celebrating something that happened in the past as a fight, right? It's not simply about celebrating the fact that there was a war, there was a battle, and there was a fight. Purim is about celebrating the fact that the fight is over. It's over. And the winner of this fight, Jesus Christ, he is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who has conquered evil. He is the victor. He is the Prince of Peace. And listen, his track record is pretty good. He has an empty grave to prove it. He's not there. Just like the, the Jews were surprised at the end of the day that they are still standing. Look at the empty tomb. Jesus is standing. Jesus is not defeated. Evil did not win. Sin, death, and hell did not win. Jesus is still standing. When the Jews should have been eliminated, they were still standing, and it should point you forward. Listen, when the hopelessness of your life and this world try to destroy you, when you and I are shaken to the core and riddled with fear because of the state of our lives and of this world, when you and I question the hand of God to preserve you and your faith and your walk with him, just ask, as Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword and answer confidently, no, because neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's true. And that's something you and I can believe today. For at the end of all things, at the end of all days, there will be a banquet, a feast to end all feasts, a party that trumps all parties. And one day, would you hear, the sky will be cracked open and Jesus Christ will come for those who place their trust in him. And the question for us this morning is, can you trust the end of the story? Can you trust the story that God is writing? that he will make all things work together for your good because you love him and he loves you. I'll close with these words I found deeply helpful, encouraging to my own soul this week from a commentator I read, and I hope it's helpful and encouraging to you, and then we'll pray. Hear these words. On that final day, we will celebrate because we will be able to look back over the history of our world and the journey of our lives and we will see before our eyes for the first time the full beauty of God's providential work. We will be able to, to look closely and to see our own individual stories fitted together and playing their part in one large mosaic of God's providential and redemptive work so that all of history itself emerges before our eyes as one grand work of art, more beautiful than anything Rembrandt could have painted. Together, 
together, we will look deeply into its shapes and contours, and we will see the subtlety of its artistic style. We will even find in them some of the most unexpected places in our moral failures, in our compromises, in our sufferings, in our victimizations, in our moments of crisis, and our defining moments, and and every twist and turn of every detail of our lives. And on that day, we will celebrate with hearts overflowing. On that glorious day, we will see the artwork for what it really is, the masterpiece of the artist himself. That's our hope. That's where all of this is pointed towards. That's what Esther itself points us towards. Hope in that. Look forward by looking back. Look back at the history of your lives, at the book of Esther. There's a great story coming for us that God is writing. Let's pray. Our Father, help us in these moments to believe what we have just heard. As quickly as we have heard it, so quickly would it want to leave our hearts and minds. So quickly would the enemy want to disprove and disavow in our hearts these things. So quickly would he want us to be scattered away from here, never to say these things again or to remember it. Instead, together, this day, help us to remind one another of the great triumph of Jesus Christ in the world. As we sing in a moment, help us together to lift our voices of the great triumph of Jesus Christ, whom no one can rival, whom no one can defeat. Help us this morning to remember the one who holds us even when our grip on him is weak. Help us, O Lord, in a moment now to remember the life of Jesus Christ given for all of this to be accomplished. It's a beautiful story, one in which we know the ending and yet one in which we need much grace to live through and help us, O Lord, by your grace to do that. It's in his name that we pray, amen. We turn now uh, to celebrate.